Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Evening Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London Waterloo and City, Number 5 by Joe Mungo Reed Read by Adele Oni It takes me a while to find my father at the location. The trailers and catering vans are parked up a cobbled street next to the City of London Magistrates Court, little activity around them. It is the penultimate Sunday before Christmas, dawn. The air is misty, damp, bearing a faint smell of the river. The security man at the entrance to the lane wants to see a lanyard, which I don't have. I'm the director's daughter, I say. You could be, the man says and shrugs. And maybe I still shouldn't let you through. I frown at him. People don't always feel so positive about their families, he adds. Right, I say. We're close, though. We're fine. He exhales through his nose, his breath visible in the frigid air. This time of year in particular, he says. I take out my phone and fumble to unlock it with cold fingers. A taxi passes down the road, an old one, faded to a bluish grey, a blocky body, burning oil, leaving a visible trail of smoke. I turn back and see Cathy over the shoulder of the security man. I shout to her. She registers my presence, comes over. Kathy's the assistant to my father's assistant, Henrietta. She's carrying three phones, a litter of oat milk and a small claw hammer. They're down in the tube already, Kathy says. They've been shooting for an hour. She repositions her load under her arm, then draws out her lanyard and waves it at the security man who steps back to let me pass. Down on the platform are many people of a greater category of importance. There are lots of lights and clipboards and men with cargo pockets on their trousers. The secondary drama of a shoot here and this enactment of necessity, this playing out of particular roles. The air smells of soot and metal and ancient dust. A train pulls into the station, its doors open. My father is in the middle of a carriage. He sits on a bench seat like a passenger, slumped a little, his feet crossed beneath him the outer edges of his lime-green running shoes resting on the floor. To his left stands a cameraman, a lighting crew and a couple of sound people. In front of the camera are actors and extras pressed together as if part of a commuting crowd. My father dresses like a director, that is, a schlub with an expensive pair of glasses. 
He tends to lose weight on shoots. His face gains definition. A brief catch in his gaze suggests that he has seen me. I get onto the section of train behind my father and the camera. Here are people who I recognise, who recognise me. My father's director of photography, Alexi. The assistant director, Olaf. My father's PA, Henrietta. How's university? says Henrietta. It's good, I say. It's the start of the holidays. Well, it certainly isn't here, she says. Ahead, my father has his eyes closed as if meditating on something. The train moves up to speed. Camera, says Olaf. The cameraman nods. Sound, says my father. He opens his eyes. The camera assistant claps the sticks. Action, says my father. A man amongst the press of bodies at the other end of the carriage raises his gaze towards a point behind the cameraman's head. He is a serious actor, known as much for his work in theatre as on film. He is thin, a kind of needy skinniness to him. This close, I am struck by the oddness of his features. His wide jaw, his severe brow, the way his eyes bug out. He is a handsomeness that only resolves itself as such on the screen or stage. He says, Do you expect me to believe that? I watch my father. He is looking at the ridged floor of the underground carriage. He wiggles his head as if signalling indecision. He says, Cut! This is getting closer to what I'm looking for. My father is mildly famous for his working methods, his name associated in industry circles with struggle. He is known for being exacting, meticulous. His shoots always overrun. His tendencies in this respect have only become more pronounced in recent years, those who work with him more accepting of them. People have gained an idea, I suppose, that the ordeal of working with him attests to the seriousness of his film, the clarity of his vision. This present film, he has told me, is about a banker who gets stalked by a street performer. The theme is economic inequality, apparently. It's sort of French in its preoccupations, he said on the phone when I called him two days ago. He talks guardedly of the production, and I sense in this guardedness that he has hopes for it, aspirations towards those awards and plaudits that still elude him. The train stops at Waterloo. The platform is empty. The doors do not open. Outside, the driver trots to the other end of the train. My father has his eyes closed. He rubs at his lids with his thumb and forefinger. We start again. We get up to speed. Another take begins. The lead actor says, Do you expect me to believe that? My father cuts in. Say the words, he says, as if they're being said by someone else. When I was a child, my father was often away for months at a time. When he had returned from a shoot in Argentina that lasted nearly a year, I recalled that he told me to wash my hands before dinner. And I thought, who the fuck are you to tell me that? I was angry and I could rage at him like I have raged at nothing since. But it was so boring feeling like that in the end. Few stories of omission are so simple one comes to see. My siblings and I wanted for nothing. We travelled, we met interesting people. In the summer we went to a mansion on the Mediterranean. My father would appear for short periods of the holidays, like a returning king. Your fierce and jealous tribe, he said proudly. I remember that. I am one of seven. 
Sometimes he'd go away, and I'd wonder if he'd even know me when he got back, whether he'd be able to pick me out of the mass of the rest of us. I was the fifth oldest, and I took to calling myself number five. I would sign letters to him, number five. It's number five, I would say, when I reached him on the phone. He thought he was very witty, though. He continued calling me number five long after I had given it up myself. We travelled back and forth between the two platforms for an hour and a half, the actor repeating the line, my father cutting in to offer an obtuse direction. Sometimes they get two takes in before the train turns around, sometimes only one. The actors look thoroughly pissed off, which, to my father's credit, suits their roles as commuters. Between takes, the man holding the boom mic puts it down on the seats beside him. He hooks his thumbs in his armpits and paddles his elbows like wings. He breathes as if these movements relieve a pain. Coffee, says Henrietta to the carriage. Henrietta is unique in her ability to neglect the conventions of my father's sets, to intrude on his attention without censure. He looks up. Two more, he says. When he has tried four more takes, my father says, we are approaching what I'm looking for. The train door reopens and we troop out onto the platform. He comes over and kneads my shoulder. He smells sour, familiar. A hint of sweat, juicy fruit chewing gum on his breath. He is energised on days like these in a way that still surprised me. Laura, he says, you're having fun? I do love hearing the same line a hundred times, I say. We're not half done, he says. Don't you remember when you wanted to be a director? When you used to come on set with a straw hat like the one I used to wear? I think that was another of your children, I say. A little clapperboard, if I remember rightly. The name of whatever film I was working on then scrawled on it in chalk. Very cute. I don't remember this, I say. It was someone else, I think. I can't imagine you being particularly charmed by it. He chuckles in agreement. An intern arrives with coffee. Well, why are you here? He says. His hands go up in pantomime confusion. He laughs again. I told you when I called, I say. Something about your brother selling pencils. Mark quit university, I say. You remember this, right? He's working in an upmarket stationery shop now. You are someone who arrives with an agenda. You are the practical one. When I consider this, I agree that perhaps you were not the budding director I was remembering. No. It's not a bad thing, don't get me wrong. It's not the fact that he's selling pencils, I say. It's just that he seems unhappy. Lost. He's broken up with Claire. He's what, 22? I nod. Christ, at 22 I hadn't even been near a university. I'm not sure I could have tied my own shoelaces. Lost wouldn't begin to describe me at 22. Larry comes past. Larry is American, a fixture on my father's sets, though I have no idea what his defined role actually is. He says, We're blowing money out of our asses on this one. Loudly, to no one in particular. My father smiles. He is always cheered by the presence of Larry, by Larry's saying things like this. My brother and I live together in Newcastle. Mark is older, arrived in the city two years before me, dropped out of university in his final year. We share a messy flat. Like our father, Mark has blue-green eyes. He has some of the old man's grandness in him. Meeting him, you might think that he is very modest. But I have come to think that his self-containment is more like an opening, 
a space made with an expectation that others should advance towards him. He's the kind of boy who sits on the edge of parties waiting to be noticed. He has abandoned a degree in anthropology. The system is irredeemable, he told me. There is a limit to the insights possible within the framework. He works short shifts in the stationery shop, selling leather-bound notebooks, pencils in all the different grades. I've snuck in and watched him serve customers. He is effective in the way of upmarket waiters, tailors. He does the job with a controlled scorn for those who seek his assistance, powered, I sense, by a fierce disdain for himself. I appreciate your concern for your brother, my father says. That's a very fatherly way to phrase it. Why, thank you, he sips his coffee. Maybe university's not for him. The stationery shop complaint isn't good for you. People need pencils and pens. Someone needs to do that job. Don't be a snob. Would you want to do it? He waves his hand around in the air. I do this, he says. We get back onto the train then. My father tries another 80 minutes of takes. This one is more intense than the last one, says Henrietta. I think he thinks this could be it. My father has never won an Oscar. Perhaps this will be the film to get him one. Best picture or best director. Maybe the serious theatre actor will win one and not my father. If so, he is being made to suffer for this beforehand. Cut, my father says. You're surprised to find yourself saying the words, but it is a surface-level surprise. Another part of you understands that this interaction is fated. You have carried these words within you for a very long time. Also remember that you have a trapped nerve in your back. We get off again for more coffee. This is the most filmed tube line in London, my father tells me. Waterloo and City. Closed on Sundays and so available for hire. Often art people rebadge it, make it the central line, the Victoria line. I wouldn't like to do that. Our character works in the city anyway. It's perfect as it is. Only four minutes before you need to turn around, though, I say. Three minutes forty on average, he says. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why not have the train driver go slower, get more takes in? Then the motion of the train is wrong. The rattle and the resonance would be off. In another life, he could have been an ordinary father. Possessor of the same shoddy knowledge as other men his age, interested in trains and urban arcana. I sip my coffee and think I should tell this to friends of mine too admiring in the way they ask about him. The words, I say. The words you have him saying are total shit. He looks at me with pleasure. Of course, he says. This is the language people live in, think in, junk language. Easy, close to hand. The point is not the words. The point is what is between the words. I see, I say. I'm entering a new phase, my father says, or concluding one. We get back on the train. Everybody tries again. We keep going until Henrietta says, Is it not time for lunch? My father assents. Don't get me wrong, he says. We're not quite there, but the trajectory of this shoot is good. We ride out of the station on an escalator. You're staying with your big sister Katya? Says my father. Yes, I say. 
Derek? Derek is okay. Not our people, I always think. You're coming for Christmas Day? Yes, says my father. Mark isn't coming down, I say. Right, says my father. Not this again, his expression says. Well, it is his choice. I'm just saying call him, check up on him. You've made all this effort to come here just to tell me this. Henrietta is lingering by the catering vans when we arrive at street level. There is food in your trailer, she says to my father. No more of that salad dressing you didn't like. It wasn't dressing, says my father. It was mayonnaise and a memory of cheese. He waves his hand. I think we're going to go somewhere nearby anyway. He checks with me. I nod my assent. We walk away from the chute on quiet pavements. A ruffled pigeon hobbles out of our way. One of its feet a sacrificed nub. How's university, my young philosopher, he says. He is wearing just a thin jersey that seems untroubled by the cold. Fine, I say. Give me one of your riddles. I do not want to give him with Geinstein to get his fierce autodidactic teeth into. I tell him about moral luck. Then, the two drunk drivers. One who encounters a child in the road and hits that child, and one who gets home without incident on empty roads. The point, he says. They performed the same actions, I say. They were equally reckless, and yet one, most people feel, is more blameworthy. The one who hit the child. I shrug, yes, of course. We don't like to think of chance playing a part in judgments of this kind. It's good, he said. I like it. It proves what? It disquiets us, I say. It challenges our intuitions. It breaks up the narrative of character. I love it, he says. You are good at this. This study befits you. I went to a conference, I say. I met people who were really good. Yes? Men and women made to think, I say. People who talk too fast for me who began from assumptions I could not grasp. Strange, he says. I nod. A bit. Really, I thought of nature documentaries I had seen about the extreme depths of the oceans, the creatures they find down there. Huge-eyed fish with lanterns on their heads, tiny translucent creatures. They were wonderful and terrifying, the others there. I met a man who said, I study the history of retrocausality. He wore a full tracksuit. He awaited my follow-up questions. They were young people freakishly destined to be doing what they were, resolved only on their precise pursuits. We came to a branch of Pret-a-Manger. My father waves his thumb at it. This is what he's been looking for, I suppose. The staple of my last years before university. There was a branch three doors down from the house. We ate sandwiches morning, noon and night. Sure, I say. We go in and the smell is so familiar. The clatter of service, the light. Go save a place, says my father. He points to the stalls facing out of the window. Avocado and crayfish? Yes. I go to a stall. I turn in it and watch him queuing, half listening as the cashier asks him whether he wants a bag. He looks behind him at the line. He looks out of the door. There is a young man out there, smoking, wearing a lanyard from the chute. My father goes and taps on the glass. The man comes in, talks to my father, hands him a twenty-pound note. My father smiles an apology. I forgot my wallet, he says, when he arrives with the sandwiches on a plastic tray. I could have paid, I say. He shakes his head. They have expenses, there is a system. He guts open the packaging of his sandwich. He slices his sandwich into quarters with a black plastic fork. Uncle Rob is coming for Christmas, I say. Your sister is paying for his flights? This seems low, so I do not reply. 
Rob is my father's brother, a blues musician, recorder of more than 30 albums, recipient of 10 pence royalty checks from Spotify. He lives in an apartment in Vilnius, a city which, according to him, is cheap, surprisingly pretty, and famous for a number of palatable delicacies made from pork. He's made a new album, I say. That's nice, says my father. I hope this one does well for him. He chews. Outside the window is a dog tied to a lamppost, rising onto its hind legs, falling down again. He's never forced it, says my father. Or things have never fallen for him. You have to shake things for a bit for things to fall. He's good at Christmas, I say. Mum always liked Rob. Of course. He's me without the hard edges, what is not to like. So why stay hard-edged, I say. My father has embarked on eating the final quarter of his sandwich. He helicopters his free hand around his head as if to say, this, the moment, the city, the film crew we have just left behind. I know the waypoints of my father's life. I've heard him talk about them often. He's at the level of fame where half the people he meets know his name before he says it. One must have a story in these circumstances, a front to present the world. He left his boarding school without qualifications. He wanted to be a painter. He went to Italy because he felt that was the thing to do. I had no talent, but my big brother was a musician, he tells people. So I couldn't do that. I picked painting at random. He was eating in a restaurant in Naples one lunchtime when an American couple came in, were seated next to him. They went on to have the most fantastic argument, he says. They poured it all out, thinking no one around them understood. He listened. She kept talking about the way he snorted as he laughed. He kept complaining about the expense of the cocktail she had ordered in Rome. He loved the intimacy. The fact he could picture their lives, the way his sympathy swung back and forth. This could be a film, he thought. He talks of this story as the official history. What's the unofficial? I once asked. I watched a lot of great films and wrote a lot of shit scripts, he said. Just like everyone else. We walk back to the station in light drizzle. The day is already falling towards dusk. Seriously, he says. You worry about your brother? Yes, I say, of course. Is he going to do something, he says. Is that what you're implying? A breakdown? Suicide? I wonder whether he knows he is outmatching me. If he is foreseen, I can't follow him there. I lack his capacity for overstatement. What about conventional unhappiness, I say? He throws up his hands, exhales. Conventional unhappiness? What do I do with that? We stopped across the road. The set is there, humming with activity. People are clocking the arrival of my father already. I admit it, he says. You've had a tough time, and perhaps I didn't help you through it as much as I could. But he is older. It's those of you who were teenagers who I worry about sometimes. The thing he is talking around is my mother's death four years before. But I do not want this corny, half-built regret, this ordinary, fatherly admission. But what if it's not about that, I say. He looks at me. If it's not about that, then I don't have a clue what I'm doing. We travel down the escalator into the station. People are in position already, waiting for him. On the platform, the crowd parts to allow him onto the train. I follow in his wake. He went off on a shoot the week after my mother's funeral. It's what she would have wanted, he said. And I've never thought he was wrong. His work was both their work in the end. She had made that choice. She had been an actor when she met him. I massaged her feet a great deal when she was ill. She had strong feet, high arches. She was a good dancer. 
She looked younger in the first weeks of the disease, which took weight from her face, which seemed oddly to relax her features. I asked her then if she regretted giving up the acting. We had Katya and it was clear, she said. I'm not talking about men and women. I felt my previous life was small. I did not need it. The world did not shift for him in this way. You get into a thing like that and the kind of person you are becomes obvious. He walks into the train, takes his seat in the same position he's occupied all day. I go through the other sliding door into the back of the carriage. I stand beside Henrietta. Good lunch, she says. Yes, I say. I heard you won a prize for a philosophy essay, came second. You'll do a PhD, she asks. I don't know, I say. The train starts to move again. My father does takes for two more hours. We break for coffee. It is no doubt already fully dark outside, and I must return to my sister's house for dinner. My mother always said that my father's story about the restaurant in Italy was bullshit. He wouldn't have actually listened, she said. He would have leaned over and coached each of them in what to say. I think that she was right. And yet I also know that my father believes his own story to be true. If not a full history of his creative beginning, at least an active part, he has absolute trust in his own narratives, in the essentiality of his obsessions. When I was younger, my parents never watched the news, never read newspapers. There was just my father's work. If something important happens, my father would say, someone will kick down the door and shout it at us. But how to live and not await the sound of a boot against wood? My father limps off the train. He is tired himself now. He drinks the coffee slowly. He studies the tiling on the wall of the station. I tell him that I must go. You don't want to stay until the bitter end, he says. He laughs. He is drawing together the last of his reserves. I think I can bear to miss it, I say. He smiles. He turns back towards the train. I know how it will go. He will keep shooting all evening. He will hold to his prerogative, that claim to hear something between those words that others do not. He will take them all to their limit. He will push until the moment must declare itself. He will say to everyone's surprise that this is it, that they are done. Release them all so simply. He will believe fully in this, in the necessity of it all, in the miraculous resolution of the day in this single flawless take. He will leave all those people clearing away the equipment from the platform. He will ascend on the escalator to a waiting taxi. He will return to the house, the two rooms he lives in there. How does one get that? Such control, such absorption, such faith in one's own story. The quiet house, the alarm clock set for 4.15. No thought of life another way. How does one get that? I want to know. Number five is a short story of the underground from Joe Mungo Reed. Joe Mungo Reed's latest novel, We Begin Our Ascent, is out on the 5th of July, 2018, and will be available in audiobook, hardback, and ebook. You can find the other stories in this collection from Borough Press on Audible, Kobo, and Apple. <laughs>